Well, hey, do me a favor, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We are five weeks in chapter 1. Um, chapter 1, verses 23 through to chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, or maybe you just forgot your Bible, uh, we've got a bookshelf on the back, and you are free to grab one from there. And if you don't actually own a Bible, just keep that. If you do own a Bible and you just forgot, put it back for those who still need one. Um, and as you're turning there, once again, at 2 Corinthians 1, uh, 23 is where we'll start. Uh, a couple things that I want to hold before you just as announcements uh, so that you, you hear me on this. One, we are not meeting next Sunday. Uh, we took Mother's Day off, and I think it would be unfair to not take Father's Day off, too. I think that would be kind of mean to the fathers. So we will not be here next Sunday. Uh, celebrate your dad, celebrate your family, or just enjoy a, a Sunday night off. And eat checkers or do something cool like that. Um, uh, secondly, we won't see you next Sunday, but we will see you tomorrow if you signed up for our Top Golf event. Uh, that is going on from 7 to 9. And that includes dinner as well. So if you signed up for Top Golf, then, then you're welcome to that. If you didn't sign up for Top Golf, you can still hang out, but you can't play or eat unless you pay for it yourself because I already turned the numbers in. So, let me just throw that out to you as well. And then last but not least, the Women's Resource Center is a ministry on the campus of our church that we have committed to as a ministry supporting. And so rather than us taking up a tithe or an offering on Sunday nights, we take up donations to the Women's Resource Center. Uh, that's headed up by Cheryl English, and her desire is that that would just be a place for women coming from broken backgrounds, whether it's an abusive spousal situation or whether they are single moms or coming out of poverty or homelessness. Her hope is that that would be a place for those women to get back on their feet and, and to step into a better life. And so if you haven't looked into all the stuff that that ministry does, it's incredible. I mean, they've got a halfway house that they just opened up. They're looking at opening up a second one as well. Uh, and let me just encourage you, because I don't do this enough, to make sure throughout your week to, to consider that as an opportunity for you to serve here. Um, forego a venti iced latte coffee thing uh, and buy some perishable goods and, and donate them on Sunday night so we can serve the people in our community. Uh, so with all that being said, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. And for those of you who were with us last week or those of you who weren't with us last week, uh, you'll recall that Paul is in the midst of refuting an allegation that has been laid before him. Uh, Paul has been criticized heavily by the Corinthian church, and the criticism that he is addressing in last week as well as this week's section of this letter is, is basically this. Paul has told the Corinthians uh, that he plans to visit them twice over the course of his journey. So if I can give you an air map with my hands as landmarks, um, Paul is on this side of the Roman Empire. Uh, Corinth is somewhere around here in the Roman Empire, and Paul needs to get to Asia on the other side of the Roman Empire. And so what Paul tells the Corinthians is, on my way to Asia, I'm going to stop once and visit you, then go to Asia and handle my business. Uh, and then on my way back to Judea, which is back on this side that he just came from, I plan on stopping and meeting you once more, and then going to Judea. So Paul makes the first visit on his way over. And it goes really, really, really bad. Uh, it goes so badly uh, that, that Paul is, is very concerned about the health of this church in Corinth. And so he goes on to Asia. And if you'll remember from earlier in the text, it doesn't go very well in Asia either. He says that it was actually so bad that he despaired of life itself. 
Uh, That was the nature of what he experienced in the province of Asia. And so Paul doesn't make the second trip. Paul stops the first time, goes to Asia, and then chooses not to stop in Corinth on his way back. And so what's happened is that in Paul failing to stop the second time there, the people who oppose him, the people who don't like him, have leapt on this. And they've said, you can't trust Paul. If Paul really loved you, he would have come the second time like he said that he was going to. Uh, You you can't trust Paul. He said he'd be there. And and why would you trust anything he says if he didn't make this second visit? And so Paul has begun his defense of his integrity. Now, what's, what's astounding in the section from last week is that Paul never actually explains why he changed his plans. Uh, he, he begins to defend himself, and never once does he say, hey, here's why I didn't come the second time. And, and I think there's a reason for that. There's this video on, I guess it's on YouTube. I don't know. It's on the internet somewhere. Uh, and it, it opens with this dramatic music and this close-up of just half of a woman's face, and she's talking to what you would presume to be her boyfriend or fiancé or husband. And she's just describing this pain that she's in where she says it's just this sharp, intense pressure just right here. And, and it's just blinding. And, and, and I just don't know where it came from and where it's, where it's going and if it'll go away. And, and it's just so stressful. And then it cuts to the face of the guy she's talking to and he just looks dumbfounded at what she's saying. And then from this back shot where you can see both of the backs of their heads, she turns to him and you can see that she has a nail going through her forehead. And the guy says, maybe it's because you have a nail in your head that your head hurts. And she freaks out. It's not about the nail. The problem is not the nail. And whether that's an accurate summary of relationships or not, I have no idea. I can't speak from experience. But but the reality is that for Paul, Paul recognizes that this criticism of his travel plans is not ultimately what this is about. Paul knows that in the ancient world, travel plans change all the time. People get sick. Roads get closed. People get robbed. It's not about the plans. The plans are just a rock that the people who don't like him can throw at Paul to question his integrity. The question is not, why did you change your plans? The question is, are you, Paul, trustworthy? And so Paul doesn't even start by talking about his plans. He starts by talking about his integrity. And what's so fascinating about this is that when Paul begins to lay down the case for why he is trustworthy, he grounds it in the incarnation. It's this incredible argument where where Paul basically says this, that we know that God is trustworthy because God has made good on his promises in Jesus. Jesus is the one in whom all of God's promises find their yes, this beautiful phrase that we sing in some of our hymns. And because I have encountered Jesus, for Paul, it is inconceivable that somebody who knows the risen Christ, who is the very integrity of God incarnate, it is inconceivable that they wouldn't be a trustworthy person. Because we want to be sons of our Father in heaven, and our Father in heaven is trustworthy because he's spoken in his Son and made good on his promises. So this idea of sketchy pastors that do questionable things, it's utterly foreign to Paul. How how could you be deceitful When God has made good on his promises in the man whose name you bear and you sing and you profess. And it's it's just astounding to me as as I walk through um, just the New Testament and through scripture. I don't don't know if many of you know this, but we have a, a program here at the church called Foundations where we teach systematic theology, church history, apologetics, all this stuff. And so I've been I've been teaching some of the classes there, and I'm teaching this course on the life of Christ. 
uh, which we just got started with today, and it is astounding to me how much of the Christian life is grounded in Jesus. Right? Paul says, why are Christians honest? Because God shows his honesty in the incarnation of his son. Why do Christians serve? Because the son of God took on flesh to serve a broken and needy and dying world. Why do Christians have confidence in the scriptures? Because the word made flesh said of the word written that the scriptures cannot be broken. And he always goes back to this question when people question him. Have you not read? It's what he goes back to time and time again. Why do Christians Why do we have a hope beyond this life? Paul would say because Christ, the incarnate Son of God, has been raised, and if Jesus has been raised, then death is not the end for those who are united to him. Everything hinges on Jesus. And so if you're not a Christian in this room and you're wondering why we make these horrible bumper stickers and t-shirts that say Jesus is my homeboy, I can't presume to offer a defense for you because I think it's silly. But if you wonder why much is made of this man who lived 2,000 years ago, it's because he is not simply a man. He is the axle upon which all of human history turns. He is the hinge upon which the door of human life swings. He's significant. And Paul says, my integrity is grounded in the incarnation. But Paul still hasn't explained why he changed his plans. And if you were here last week, you might be wondering, why did Paul change his plans? And this is what he addresses this week. In 2 Corinthians 1.23, he says, I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know of the abundant love that I have for you. So to this question... Paul, why did you change your plans? Paul says clearly in chapter 123, I changed my plans. I refrained from coming to you to spare you. And he says it very strongly. He, said, he essentially says, God is my witness. This is why I didn't visit you the second time. So that leads us to the question of what is he talking about? Well, and, and here's, here's what's going to help us understand this, is the understanding that the New Testament church has of the apostle in the Christian life, or the role of the apostle. Uh, when Jesus ascends into heaven, he commissions these men, and he sends them out into the world. Uh, and it's grounded in his authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. And he sends them out to start the church. And so early Christians recognized that apostles had authority because they had been eyewitnesses to the risen Christ, they had sat under Jesus' teaching, and Jesus had selected them and sent them out into the world to plant the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. Which means, I know this is a little technical, but what this means is that when you rejected an apostle in the ancient church, you rejected Christ. Because Christ exerted his authority through the apostles. Now, apostles weren't perfect, right? Peter made some mistakes, a lot of them. Read all the gospels. Uh, and, and there were times even after Christ's resurrection that Peter made mistakes. 
But when a church without any biblical warrant or without any moral license rejected an apostle, it was to reject the system of authority that Christ had given for that period of church history. So here's what Paul recognizes, is that when he visited Corinth the first time, they rejected him. We want nothing to do with you. We'll find our own apostles. We'll find people who tell us what we want to hear. Bump you, Paul. And so Paul goes on his way, but he realizes that the next time he comes to that church, if they have not repented, and if they have not changed their tune, so to speak, he has to come in judgment. The next time he comes to this church, if they have not changed their perspective, it's going to be to excommunicate them. It's going to be to cut them off from the larger body of Christ. It is going to be to pass judgment. So what Paul says is, I waited in the hopes that things would change so I wouldn't have to drop the hammer on you. And, and you're going to use that against me? Maybe this would make sense in a more modern setting. Uh, let's presume that, that we all still live at our parents' house in a period of time where our parents make us clean their room, or clean our room. If your parents made you clean their room, that would be weird. Um, let's say you're 10 years old, you're living at your parents' house, and your mom or your dad or your aunt or uncle or whoever makes you clean room says, Johnny, Susie, you have 10 minutes to clean your room. And if you don't, you're going to get put in time out, or you're not going to be able to watch Toonami, or whatever it might be. <laughs> All the guys in this room loved that reference. Um, maybe some girls too. But whatever it might be, you have 10 minutes, clean your room, or the hammer's coming down. Now, if you were like me, when you received that charge, you went off to your room, and you picked up the first action figure that needed to be put away, and you go, my, my, I've never marveled at the architecture of this Gundam. <laughs> and I was immediately distracted. Five minutes in, any hope of cleaning that room is totally gone. So let's, let's assume that this happened to you in, in our scenario. And your parents stop by five minutes in, notice you haven't done anything, and say, you know what? I'm going to show them some leniency. I'm going to give them another 10 minutes. So your parents come back 20 minutes rather than 10 minutes later, and you turn to them and say, you liar! You said it would be 10 minutes, and you came back in 20, you wicked woman. It's absurd. It's a foolish thing to do because the whole reason that the visit was postponed is to spare you. The whole reason that your parents give you extra time is an act of mercy. And Paul is saying to them, the reason I didn't come back right away is because if you hadn't fixed things, I would have had to judge you and cut you off. And you take that and you turn it against me. It's an absurdity. What it reminds me of, it, for those of you who want to follow my train of thought into just nerd love, um, it reminds me of, of this scene in Lord of the Rings. It's in the books, it's in the movies, uh, where Frodo has the ring. And if you haven't watched Lord of the Rings, this is going to be the worst sermon illustration of all time. Um, <laughs> Frodo has the ring, and Gandalf has asked Frodo for the ring, and they're sitting in his home. Uh, and Frodo initially is ready to give the ring to Gandalf, and he begins to change his mind. And, and he kind of gets all crouched over and gnarly looking with his hobbit self. And, and he turns on Gandalf and he says, the ring is mine, you want it for yourself. And in this terrifying scene, it's like Gandalf gets inflated like a balloon and he gets huge and the room grows dark. And he says, Bilbo Baggins, do not take me for a conjurer of cheap tricks. I am not trying to rob you. I am trying to help you. All your long years, we have been friends Trust me as you once did. 
And it's almost as if the Corinthians have become the hobbit in this story, and Paul has become Gandalf. And he kind of unfurls his wizard robes, and he says, I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to help you. I love you. Trust me that there was a reason that I didn't come back right away, and it was for your good. Lord of the Rings and the Bible, they go together very well. (laughs) Amen. Amen. But I wonder, I wonder if we have learned from Paul in this respect. Because Paul is perfectly aware of the fact that the people who hate him will take this and they will use it against him. Paul is no fool. Read Romans. Tell me if you think Paul is stupid. It's unbelievable. Paul is not ignorant to the fact that people are going to use his kindness against him. And at great cost to himself, he refuses to have the last word in the hopes that these people might be spared. But how many times have you and I in our arguments and our debates when we feel wronged, how often have we turned on the person who's wronged us and lashed out at them? And rather than suffering the insult to our pride, we wound other people made in the image of God with our harsh tongue. I can remember at least one time where this was very clear to me. Uh, A friend, I guess I would say, had posted this, this thing on Facebook about how Churches just take your tithe money and use it on stupid things. Christians are robbers. Uh, I was foolish. Um, But I read it, and and I sent him a message and and just said, hey, you know, I think you've got a point. There's certainly some churches that that don't use tithe money for the right purposes. But just so you know, from an insider's perspective, I, I work at a church, and we actually put our expense report, like, out in the lobby on Sunday morning so people can see where their tithes and offerings are going. And, and just in case you're curious, here, here's some of the stuff that we do at this church with the tithes that come in. So we have a mental health counseling facility that we host on our campus. Uh, we have a women's resource center for women who are coming from abusive situations. We have a garden out behind our church where all of the produce goes to stock food pantries in the local area. Uh, part of that money goes to fund an orphanage in Uganda for child soldiers so they can have a chance at a normal life. And so, so I mean, I get that you might be kind of frustrated. Sure, yeah, but you should know that not every church is as bad as you've made it sound. And I thought I was very gracious. And Travis, being a nice guy. And his response was, whatever, man, don't want to talk about it. I've made up my mind. (sighs) Oh, my gosh. So with all of the grace that the Lord Jesus gave me, I said, that's cool, man. Just thought you might want to be informed. Slammed my computer shut and did like a 10-mile run to burn off my frustration. Right? Because I felt like my pride had been wounded. And not, not that he had said anything that made me go, oh, no, he proved me wrong. But that it was just so stupid. I was so frustrated at what had been said that it took everything in me to not have the last word and drop the hammer on him. Most of the time, it doesn't work out that way in my life. Most of the time, when somebody has wronged me or offended me, I am quick to swing the axe. And when my pride has been wounded, I always want to have the last word. Paul is unwilling to do that with these people. Paul is willing to let people insult him in the hopes that the people who are insulting him will come to repentance and be spared. Are we willing to do that when we're wronged? Are we willing to follow Paul's example here and to suffer insult to our person and to our character if it means that people might come to repentance? So Paul explains, this is why I changed my plans. And you'll see at the end of the letter, Paul's still coming to Corinth. 
He just postponed the visit. So he explains why he's changed his plans. And then he goes on. He says, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know of the abundant love which I have for you. So Paul shifts from why his plans changed to what he did instead of his visit, which is to write a letter. Now, I'm not going to rehash the whole history of Paul and the Corinthian church. You can listen to the last five podcasts for that. But you should know that between 1 Corinthians and your Bible and 2 Corinthians, there is a letter that was lost to the sands of time, which is called the tearful letter. After Paul's first visit, instead of visiting them again, he writes them a letter and he begs them to repent and to change their mind and to return to the orthodox faith that he had delivered to them. And so he begins to describe, one, why he wrote the letter, and two, what his emotional state was in writing the letter. So what Paul essentially does for us is give us a textbook case in calling somebody out. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, let me just break the news to you. You've sinned while you were a Christian. And if you've been in any sort of a good or healthy church for any length of time, you should expect somebody to call you out on it at some point or another. But the breakdown here is, one, how we receive criticism, and two, how criticism is delivered. Because I've had people call me to repentance on things in two different ways, and it elicits two different responses from me. One is, screw you, man, I'm gonna do me. And the other one is, you're right, I need to, I need to fix this. And all of it is bound up in the disposition of the person who offers the criticism. So I want you to see in Paul's letter why and how he calls these people to repentance. He says, um, he says in verse 4, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know of the abundant love that I have for you. This is why this letter is called the tearful letter. Not 2 Corinthians, but the in-between letter. It is called the tearful letter because Paul says, I wept in writing this letter. See, Paul doesn't write the Corinthians out of anger. Paul doesn't write the Corinthians out of bitterness. Paul writes the Corinthians in mourning. And I wonder, for you and I as Christians, when you hear of, of another pastor falling into adultery, or when you hear of another church leader who steps away from the faith to live a reckless life, or you hear of a brother or sister who's walking in sin, is your first response to that anger, or is it mourning? Because for Paul, he leaves Corinth crushed, not angry, but in tears, Because ultimately, the sin of the Corinthians has not just driven a wedge between himself and the members of that church. The Corinthians have driven a wedge between themselves and God. Paul comes to these people not in fury, but in tears. When was the last time that you wept for the sins of your brothers and sisters? When was the last time that the sin of the church caused you to mourn? Not to get ticked off, not to get mad and write a Facebook post, not, not to slander the church in whatever way you might do it, but to mourn at the utter destructive power of sin among the people of God. 
Paul says, I didn't write you out of anger. I wrote you out of tears and anguish. And, and I would venture to say that if you haven't mourned for the sin of the brother or sister that you're about to criticize, you probably shouldn't criticize them. Leave it for somebody else to do. Somebody who's felt the full weight and not just the anger. So he says, I wrote you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears. And he says, not to cause you pain, but to let you know of the abundant love that I have for you. And understand this, that that Paul makes a fundamental distinction that we fail to make in our day and age. We assume that when somebody comes to criticize us in whatever way that they do it, that it is always out of ill intent. It's always mean-spirited. Anytime we receive criticism, it's always because such and such doesn't like me, and they're a haters, and haters gonna hate, right? Or they're a hater, and forgive my grammar. Um, We assume it's always out of ill will. We assume that it's mean-spirited. We make this assumption about people. What Paul wants the Corinthians to know is, my letter was harsh, but I had no intention of hurting you. The reason I wrote this letter is because I love you. And when one brother or sister calls another one to repentance and and says, hey, Steve, I I really think that where you're going here might might not be honoring of Christ. Listen, the way that that's meant to be done in Scripture is out of love, not out of bitterness, not out of anger. And I think that we need to recognize that the surest sign of your hate is not criticism. The surest sign of your hate for somebody is indifference. Paul says, the reason I wrote you is because I love you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't have written to you, and I would have just let you collapse. Proverbs 27, Solomon says that an enemy multiplies kisses, but the wounds of a friend can be trusted. So hear me, if you have a godly friend right now who has come to you and pleaded with you to turn in some way or another, even if it was painful, if you can really trust the sincerity of that person, you should take that criticism seriously. Because it is much more costly for somebody who loves you to tell you something you don't want to hear than for somebody to just say nothing. And there is no more sure a sign of their love for you than telling you something that you don't want to hear but something that you need to hear. Paul says, I wrote you not out of anger. I wrote you out of tears. And I wrote you not with the intention of wounding you but with the desire to see you repent. It was out of love. Oh, that the church would recover this, that that we would recover this as the the 20 to 30-somethings of Bay Life Church. If we could only grasp that we love our brothers and sisters best, sometimes when we tell them not what they want to hear, but what they need to hear, we are close to the heart of God. And it is my prayer that you and I would love one another well by calling each other to live in a manner worthy of the name of Jesus whom we bear. And this is what Paul does for the Corinthians. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you just pleading that these truths would be brought about in us by your Spirit. Lord, I I pray that I would be a man who receives criticism well. I am so tempted to to throw it out and ignore it. 
And Lord, I pray that, that we would be a people who give criticism gently and in love and in anguish and not in bitterness or anger or envy or slander. God, I pray that you would sanctify your church in this way, that we constantly spur one another to repent and to walk rightly. And God, I pray that we would always do so out of love. And God, I pray that you would teach us to love one another more and to love you more. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.